right. Well, we got Rick with us today. Come on up, Rick. Thanks for coming down. Well, how many of you are here this morning? About a third of you, that's a good start. <laughs> and uh, great, uh, appreciate the, the worship. You know, the only commandment with a promise was if we would honor our fathers and mothers. And what was the promise? That it would go well with you. How many of you would like things to go well? Most, of, most people would, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and that you would have longevity that you may dwell long in the land that the Lord's given to you. And, uh, you know, one of the things that is going on in our country today is a terrible dishonoring of the fathers and father, uh, fathers and mothers. And, uh, you know, we've had a revisionist history uh, now being taught in our schools and all that is, to me, it's the fulfillment of Isaiah 5 where, you start, you know, calling good evil and evil good, honoring the dishonorable and dishonoring the honorable. After which, as you read in Isaiah 5, there's a certain definite judgment that comes upon any nation that does this. And read down that list. I think we're in the middle of it. And uh, I don't think it's God smiting us or hitting us. He's just removing the hedge of protection. And, um, and we're reaping what we sow. But one of the thing, ways that we can personally turn this around is to turn, we're going to honor our fathers and mothers. Now, you know, nowhere does it say the perfect ones. Nobody would have one. We have one in heaven who's perfect, but he didn't even say the good ones. I think if you had really hard, bad parents, I don't know what else to call them, and you still honor them, you get more martyr points for it. So you, you uh, do better. So he didn't say just the good ones or the great ones, whichever ones we have. But I think that goes to our spiritual fathers and mothers, which I've tried my whole life to honor them by going back and reading their works throughout church history, you know, and, and that's the way they honored their fathers in the uh, scriptures. They drank from the wells that they had dug. And to me, spiritually, that's reading about them, reading their works and, and all. And a matter of fact, when Jesus was asked, by what authority do you do these things? You know, he, he answered with another question. The baptism of John, is it of God or of men? And it may seem like he was deflecting their question, but he wasn't. That was the answer to their question. John was the last of an order. He was the representative of all who had prepared the way for the Lord, who had prophesied of him and spoken of him. And John was here as the last of that order to say he was the one. He is the one that we all spoke of. And Jesus didn't dishonor John. He didn't say, oh, he's the old order with a new thing. Don't pay attention to John anymore, which is much of what we've done in history by not going back and studying our history and, and, and finding ways that we can honor our history and our, our fathers and mothers. And, uh, but Jesus submitted to him. He was baptized by John, which to me, he is immersed in 
all those who have gone before. And uh, so there is something of that I think we have as a nature and a lifestyle. We don't dishonor the, the older ones, we honor them. And, uh, and of course, I think our national father, you know, the ones who are called our founding fathers, and most of them probably got their good ideas from their mothers <laughs> or from their wives, let's face it. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lives, writes his book of wisdom, Proverbs. And at the end of the book, he says, these are the things that his mother taught him. She was the one who had all that wisdom. So uh, I think motherhood is one of the highest positions anyone can have. I think if we really honored mothers and motherhood the way they deserve, I don't think we'd be having such an abortion issue today. And if we honor life for what it is, you know, the first test of Solomon's wisdom was to discern the one careful with life or full of care from the one careless or the one who had less care for life. That was the first test, and I believe that is still the first test of government is how we value life. And uh, the ones careful with it or full of care are the ones who are careless. And we're told perhaps the worst sin that we can commit as a nation is the shedding of innocent blood. What could be more innocent than the unborn? They haven't done anything yet. How much more innocent can you get than that? So there are certain consequences that comes with this behavior. And, uh, but you know, faith in God is not just faith in an outcome. Faith in God is faith in God. He's got this, he's gonna work everything out. But uh, I had the privilege of getting COVID. How many of you have had it yet <laughs> or haven't? That's, that's great, very few. Uh, um, where we are, you know, it's been going through. A lot of people have had it, but I had one of the best times of my life when I got COVID. Now I went into it with excitement. I said, the Lord says in Romans eight twenty eight, he calls all things to work together for good. Now I'm not trying to belittle those who have been affected by COVID. Some people have hurt, they've lost loved ones. And I know the seriousness, but also think they've, overshot the runway a little bit, I'm just saying, and paranoia. Um, you know, what I've heard from the people that I know that are doctors or working in healthcare, the actual COVID number is grossly inflated. Um, that'd be what it is. Um, when I got it, I just decided, okay, God causes all things to work together for good. And this has got to be great. And uh, now I felt bad. I think the last three days, I felt like I had the worst flu I'd ever had plus Ebola. I mean, it was rough. <laughs> and it was really rough. But I had the best time with the Lord. His presence was so strong, so powerful. I said, this is worth it. This is worth it. And... Uh, then when I got up, when I, the, the health department 
from South Carolina called me and said, well, today's your last day. You're out of quarantine uh, now, so you can go. So I said, great. And I got up. I couldn't walk five feet. There was a chair right there. I had to sit down. I said, where did my energy go? I got hit with that serious weakness. And uh, I felt like my internal battery was operating on 1% power. I am just, I had never felt that kind of weakness before. But I sit down in this chair going, what is this? And all of a sudden, I'm in heaven. And I'm looking face to face at the Lord. And that went on for 15 days where I had that experience every day for 15 days. I was saying, Lord, I'll do COVID again. If this would have resolved, you know, anything is worth this. But all he did every day in these encounters would only last about five minutes. I, I, I estimate five minutes. And, uh, and he would just tell me something about his coming kingdom. But this started on November the 1st. And, you know, we're all praying about the elections, everything. I couldn't even watch the news. What he showed me about his kingdom was so excited. Anything in, on our news, I don't care, elections, whatever, were so boring, I couldn't stand it. I mean, I just, I tried to watch it for five minutes on election night and I turned it off. I said, you'll show me who won or whatever, tell me, I'll find out. But I got consumed with his kingdom, his coming kingdom. Now, I believe that's the way we're supposed to be. We seek first his kingdom, but his kingdom really is coming and it's coming right now. And uh, we start to see that anything on earth is going to be boring. Once you've seen the Lord, I don't care, presidents, kings, whatever, they're not impressive. You just can't be impressed with that. So anyway, it was not until the 7th of November that the Lord said anything to me about what was going on here. In one of those experiences, he says, do you know why your country is in such trauma? And you know, when God asks you a question, he's not seeking information. You know, he didn't want my opinion. <laughs> so I just said, Lord, tell me. And he said, because you have not fulfilled 2 Chronicles 7.14. Probably the most preached verse in our country for 30 years. Um, which, of course, you know, if my people, not the heathen, he says, if my people will humble themselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will come and heal their land. He said, some have humbled themselves. Some have gotten the revelation of humility, that God resists the proud and gives his grace to the humble. So if we have any sense at all, we would be seeking every way we can to humble ourselves, not to make ourselves look bigger and you know, uh, we would always be seeking, I think in every conversation, how do we make ourselves look, how do we humble ourselves and maybe concentrate on edifying the person we're talking to instead of presenting ourselves? You know what I'm saying? Well, how would things change if just that would happen in our conversations? We were always looking for something to edify other people with. And, uh, and to make ourselves look smaller instead of bigger. 
God would give his grace. Doesn't it say throughout the scripture, humble yourselves? Do you know anywhere that it says, humble your neighbor? Or humble your pastor? Or humble your president? Or humble anybody else? No, it's, okay, let's deal with ourselves. God can do the other. And then, where does it say to exalt yourself? Nowhere, right. That's his job. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. Now, some people say, well, God doesn't exalt men. He does. It's throughout the scriptures he does. He loves to promote his children. He loves to give them a platform. And, uh, but he wants them to be worthy of it and he wants it not to cause them to stumble with pride and other things like it. You've got to be prepared for God to exalt you. But he exalted John the Baptist. All Judea came out to him. How would you like? He, was, he didn't dress for power. <laughs> He's ministering in literally the lowest place on earth. But he was so anointed, everybody came out to him. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem. Everybody knows if you want a platform and religion, you got to go to Jerusalem where the masters are. He went to the worst place you could possibly start a ministry. But he was so anointed, everybody came to him. I say, let's go for the anointing. Amen. Amen. <laughs> let's go for the anointing. You can gather a crowd with publicity and marketing and things like that, but they will always shrink back. You can build things up, but uh, we want him to build his church. But anyway, he said, very few were humbling themselves of his people. And praying, he said, there was more prayer now than ever. And I've been preaching, I believe there is, I believe some of the greatest prayer ministries in history we have in the world right now. But he said, almost all of our prayer was about temporal things. Very few were praying for the things that concerned him and for his kingdom. Stuff we want, we bombard him with. He said, there's more prayer. But uh, it was mostly about temporal things. Then he said to seek his face. You know, I've had a, a number of experiences where I've seen the Lord face to face. I've had him visit me physically where he was there physically and he laid hands on me one time. I felt his hands on my shoulders. Why would he tell seek his face if he wasn't going to do that? If you couldn't do that. And uh, I started praying that when I was young. I believe the only reason I've had these experiences, I asked for them. I wanted them. I'm not more righteous than anyone else. I'm not... The, it's not my wisdom, it's not anything that I am that got me anything from him. He paid the price for us to all have it. Who wants it bad enough to pursue it? To see, he said, when he said, seek his face, I read about Moses meeting with him face to face. And then I read 2 Corinthians 3, where it says the glory that Moses experienced was so great, he had to put a veil over his face. He said, but we're supposed to be experiencing more glory. Then Moses, I say, okay, somebody's going to walk in that. Why not us? <laughs> Who wants it bad enough to go for it? To be in 
earnest pursuit. But then he also said, very few have turned from their wicked ways. And he never told me who was going to win or anything like that. I, I would give my opinion and always give it as my opinion. And honestly, uh, as far as the election goes, I do believe Trump won by a landslide. I just talked to a friends who were intelligence officers. One of them was one of the best in the intelligence community that thoroughly evaluated the elections. <laughs> Trump won maybe the biggest margin of victory ever. They say he didn't get 75 million votes, he got at least 80 million. His votes were shaved off while the other was promoted. Stuff happens. Are we going to let that go? You know, it's up to us. You know, in America, we're the sovereign. They work for us. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Are we going to let this stand? You know, I think we're going to have to take our authority and fire some people. They're not doing a good job, in my opinion. They need firing. And we need to bring, I mean, there's a depth of corrupt, corruption in our country now that's almost unbelievable. And it's going to get worse, and the tyranny is going to get worse if we don't take our authority. What does that mean? I don't know. But I know this, the kingdom's coming, and I want to give at least 10 parts of my life to seek in his kingdom for every one part here, because that's the only thing that's going to really straighten things out in the world. Do you know it was the government was way worse when Jesus walked the earth? He was under a far worse government. And the same with the apostles. Hey, they got the job done in an amazing way. Uh, so whatever happens in this temporal realm, we have another authority. Now, I've shared this before. I've shared a lot of this with you before. But, you know, the very first place that it's mentioned in Scripture that God had a house you know, and there's a theological principle of first mention that whenever something is first mentioned in the scripture, it's usually a profound revelation of its purpose. For example, the very first verse in which prayer is mentioned, the word prophet is also mentioned. You can't be a prophet without prayer, without being devoted to prayer. Those two are totally connected. So, but the very first place in scripture where it's mentioned that God has a house is where Jacob, remember fleeing his brother and he lays down to sleep and he has a dream of these ladders reaching into heaven and the messengers of God are ascending and descending upon those ladders. And he wakes up and he goes, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. It's first place in Scripture that's mentioned that God had a house. And you know what that house is? First thing said about it, it's the place of access to heaven. Well, I think the messengers of God, our job, now that's us. That word could have been translated messenger, just, you know, it's also translated angel. It can be translated that, but it, I believe he was speaking of us because angels, they're doing that all the time, of course. Uh, but we're called to be messengers of God. And I think our job, we're supposed to be seated with him in the heavenly places. 
Ephesians 2. And our job is to ascend into the heavenly realm and bring back and then descend and bring back evidence of heaven's reality and evidence of heaven's authority over everything on the earth. And that's how Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. You see, you know, in, in heaven, we don't have cripples. Watch what happens when heaven touches this cripple. You know, demons are kicked out of heaven. They're not up there anymore. Watch what happens when heaven touches this demon-possessed person. We don't have sickness. We don't have any lack. Watch what happens when heaven, the authority of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, that was his message, what he was preaching everywhere. Watch what happens when it touches this little boy's lunch. It's enough for everybody. Now, that's available to us. He didn't come to show us how God lived. God lives actually much better than Jesus did when he walked the earth. He was showing us the way we're supposed to live. You can do this. He said, the same works that I did, you can do and even greater works. There's a key to that. I was in Perth, Australia one time with the worst jet lag I've ever had in my life. Perth, Australia is exactly, I think, 12-hour time zones, the exact opposite. And I remember it was the worst flight I've ever been on. Steve Thompson was with me. And uh, worst flight I've ever been on, you know, flew to L.A., four-hour flight. We were supposed to have a four-hour layover, and then we leave for Sydney, Australia, which was at the time the furthest, longest commercial flight in the world, 15 hours or 17 hours or something. Well, the plane had a maintenance problem, so we sit on the ramp for several hours before we take off. I'm already tired of airplanes. Guess what? Back then they had smoking sections. <laughs> they put me right in the middle. They said they, they lost my seats. Put me in the middle of the row, in the middle of the smoking section. They said, but no, don't worry, nobody smokes on this flight because, you know, we had to put everybody back there. As soon as that plane got airborne, people on both sides of me, front and back, all lit up. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I'm, I'm thinking 17 hours of this or 15 hours? Well, we finally, after this unbelievable flight, get to Sydney and it's fogged in. Then they flew us up to Brisbane as an alternate airport. Now, I'm just boasting of all my sufferings. Didn't Paul do that? Talked about being beaten and shipwrecked and stoned. Well, this was as bad as that. <laughs> I mean, if you could imagine. I'm, I'm saying, I said, Lord, you have to consider me a true Christian martyr after this flight. I have laid down my life. I have paid the price. <laughs> and uh, well, we can't land in Sydney, so they fly us up to Brisbane a couple of hours away. We land there. There are no gates. All the gates are full. We had to sit on the ramp for four hours. Can't, still can't get off the airplane. I told the stewardess, I said, if you ought to be glad there's only a few Americans on here, because if there were any more Americans, we would be off this airplane. <laughs> I said, we would have charged the doors or whatever. But we watched two whole movies sitting on the ramp in Brisbane. 
then have to take off again, fly to Sydney, and then I've got to go to Perth, which is all the way on the other side of the country. It's like flying to California again. So I finally get to Perth, and uh, I am just, you know, I can't even think I'm so messed up, jet-lagged. And I had been, you know, I've been a pilot, and I did a lot of night flying, night freight flying as a pilot, and also I trained myself not to sleep on airplanes. So this whole time, I haven't slept. I could not sleep on airplanes. And uh, back then, I can now. But uh, finally get out there to Perth and all get in our room, and I had this unbelievable dream. And the Lord said in this dream, he says, I'm going to show you how to do the greater works. And he did. And all he said was, he said, you know, Peter did not walk on the water. He walked on my word. He said, my word has more substance than the firmament. When I said, come, that's what Peter walked on. He said, it's all about obedience. And, here, and he showed me things that were going to happen. He will have people moving mountains by faith. I believe we're getting close to that time when all this is going to start unfolding. He said that that had to happen to prove his word was true. That people with faith could say to this mountain, be plucked up and it would obey them. Now, I, I think we're going to see things we've never even considered possible. I mean, beyond, I mean, Jesus, the stuff that he did was incredible, raising the dead and all. He saved his best wine for last. It's still him doing it. He does it through us, and we do it at his word. Doesn't it say faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ? And it's not just, you know, reading about him or something. It's hearing him speak. And this is what we've got to do. Now, I had, after the COVID, I mean, that was a wonderful time. But let me tell you this, too. I'm, about the fourth day in this series of experience, I asked him, what is the main thing we can do to help prepare the way for your kingdom? All he said were two words, make disciples. And I would have, you know, if you'd asked me that, I said, pray more, seek him more, all this stuff. But if you think about it, making disciples includes all that. Because, you know, the Great Commission is to make disciples, not converts, not just converts, but disciples. And then he says, teaching them to observe everything he's commanded. So that includes everything. But are we making disciples? You know, disciple in biblical times, you know, most of the disciples of the great teachers in Israel were not even allowed to be married. You could have nothing in your life that could distract you from learning of your master, learning from your master. And these are just earthly people, just great teachers in Israel. But like Gamaliel, who was Paul's teacher, he would not permit his disciples to be married and Paul stayed single his whole life. 
just to focus on this one thing of an early, how much more? We've got the king of kings. Now, Jesus called people who were married because <laughs> the stuff you learn in marriage is one of the great places where you learn true discipleship. But, but we really need to visit and revisit what Jesus said were his disciples were like. And when I did that the first time, I thought, my first thought was, I may not know a single disciple. This is rare. You don't find this. But his disciples, even more so, you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. Take up your cross daily. I mean, all these things you almost never hear taught anymore. Almost most of what is taught about Christianity today is the stuff that we get. It's about us. Well, maturity, <laughs> true spiritual maturity, it's not about us, it's about him. Seeking him, seeking his kingdom, his purposes. Then he promises, you put my kingdom first, you seek my kingdom first, I'll take care of all your stuff, take care of everything you need. And just like, you know, if, you know, God left the humbling of ourselves to us. He says, it's something you can do. And there's a number of ways in scripture that we're told we can humble. This is how you humble yourself. You know, one of the first primary ways, how about 1 Peter 5? God resists the proud, but gives his grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you at the proper time. And then he tells us how to do it casting all of your anxiety upon him. Do you know anxiety is pride? It's an ultimate pride that says this problem is too big for God. I've got to carry the, the weight of this problem. I've got to worry about this. I've got to... It's pride. That's why he said that's how we humble ourselves. Cast your anxiety. Then we're told other places, be anxious for nothing. Nothing. That includes everything, <laughs> you know. It, uh, uh, there's nothing that should make us anxious. You know, they're not, the Lord's not sitting in heaven wringing his hands over our elections. Matter of fact, it says he sits in the heavens and laughs. Psalm 2. I think if we're seated with him, we will never lose our sense of humor. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't ever lose your joy. And, uh, but anxiety, we've got to recognize that that's something we repent of. It's the sin of pride. And we've got to trust him with it. Now, our job is also to be obedient. But I think that includes a whole lot of tuning out the clamor of things that go on in our mind because he very often speaks so softly that if you've got all the clamor and the worry and the anxiety and everything else, you're not going to hear him. He likes to speak through other people. He loves to speak through people we would never think he would ever speak through. Remember the road to Emmaus? It says he appeared to them in a different form. And they couldn't recognize him. 
even though they how long they've been with him, but they didn't know him after the spirit. They knew him after the flesh because he appeared in a different form. This is a form we're not used to. They couldn't recognize him, even though he preached what was possibly the greatest sermon ever preached on the earth. You have Christ preaching Christ from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. How could anything be better than that? And they still couldn't recognize him. I think we too, we get used to our little charismatic form or our Baptist form or whatever form. If he comes in any form we're not used to, we don't recognize him. I tell you, most of the time, I really believe, I'm not, you know, I believe it is most of the time when he tries to draw near to us, it's in a form we're not expecting. Because he's trying to deal with that that is actually a root of racism. Which I believe racism is an ultimate evil, an ultimate wickedness of the human heart because it's built on two of the most powerful evil foundations. Pride, where we're, we have pride, and religious bigotry is worse than the, the natural kind, where we think we're better than others because we're a part of a certain group or movement or something. God resists the proud. And the other foundation of racism is fear, where we're afraid of those who are different from us. You know, our God so loves diversity, he made every snowflake different, made every one of us different. Everyone, finding two here that are alike or anywhere. He loves diversity. I think when he made us in his image, the real image there is not that he had arms and legs and all that looks like it. He made us to be creative. He loves creativity. And you, your creativity gets shut down with fear. And, uh, and we also close ourselves off from those who we may need the most. If we only relate to those who are like us, how are we going to learn? What are they adding to us? Or us to them? But, you know, who should be more creative than those who walk with the Creator? those who serve the creator. How, how, how much better? And I think if, why, we have to ask the question, if this is true, why is his house, which we are now, the church, so boringly uniform? I think, you know, we really walk with him. Every meeting is going to be unique. There's going, to be some, there's going to be an excitement. There's going to be a freshness. So doesn't it say he's new every morning? Then it says he doesn't change. So what's going on? <laughs> you know, well, there is so much of God. We're going to be spending eternity learning about him. I know when we see him, we'll be like him. A lot of people think that means we'll immediately, we will know him just as we are known. That doesn't mean we know everything about him. There's still that learning. There's still, and that's going to be the excitement and the adventure of it all. I think we're going to be, after a gazillion years, we're going to be as much in awe of God, maybe more so, 
You know, he made the universe expanding. That's the physical universe, which is only a shadow of the spiritual realm. Has as much reality to it as your shadow does compared to you. In the spiritual realm. I've, the few times I've been able to experience that realm, I learned right away there are more species in heaven than there are on the earth. And we haven't even discovered all the species on earth yet. God is so creative, so diverse. But then if we start really seeing the treasure, people, but I think one of the ways we can do that, didn't he say, as we do unto the least of his little ones, we've done to him. What if we start treating all of his people like we treated him? He said that's, we're going to be judged on that. The parable of the sheep and goats. What if we really started honoring and esteeming his people like we do him? Would you like to take Jesus to lunch today? How many of you would jump on that? <laughs> you know, for sure. Okay. He said, take even the least of my little ones. You've done it. You've done it. Unto me. But I think there's something when we had that concept of honor. Now, guess what? None of his kids are perfect. We all have flaws. We've all got issues, problems. We're dealing with stuff. But if we're smart, we're going to treat each other. These are the sons and daughters of the king. I remember I was in London one time in hotel right, right around the corner from Buckingham Palace. And I said, I'd just go out for a walk. I was going to walk around the palace. And the Lord said to me, he said, what would you say to the queen if you met her? And I braced myself. Oh, no, I'm going to run into the queen. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a dumb American. I don't know if you curtsy or you whatever, you know. I said, the only thing I can do, Lord, I'm going to try to treat her with as much respect as I can. I'll probably be awkward and fumble through it, but I would, she's the queen. I would, it says, give honor to those to whom honors do. I'm going to, I would try to. He said, don't you ever forget that when you talk to my church, you're talking to the queen. You're talking to my bride. You always treat her with the greatest respect. He says, she may need correction, she may need help, but you do it with respect. I'm just saying. You know, how would you like it if you asked a friend of yours to keep your kids while you had to go on a trip or something and came back and they weren't fed, they were injured and not taken care of and just in a mess? You would take that personally. That's the way they treated you. You know, so we really need to look at how are we treating his, his kids? The king of kings' kids. But I think there's something of this respect, this honor. Goes back to honoring our fathers and mothers. Not to, but we don't have perfect ones. I, I wrote these. One reason was just, just do one little thing I could do to help counter this dishonoring of the fathers that's going on, because that's making things go bad for us. If you, if you honor your fathers and mothers so they will go well with you, if you dishonor them, it's not going to go well. It's going to go well. And guess what? It's getting worse and worse. 
to me, this is a, kid, a, a key to turning things around. But just that nature of honoring others. Now, uh, you know, I, when I was a brand new Christian, when Watergate happened, I was a pretty new Christian, and I had gloated about how I'd seen some wickedness in President Nixon. I said, this guy's a deceiver. He's got problems. And I was telling everybody. And then when it all came out, I was so proud of myself. I was so, I told you, I was right about that one. And you know, you know what the Lord said? You were right. I showed you something. But if you'd have done with that knowledge what I wanted you to do with it, your nation would not be going through the trauma it's going through right now. He said, I showed you that so you could pray for him. So you could intercede. And, you know, he doesn't say pray for your leaders that you agree with. <laughs> I'm just saying, when Paul wrote that, <laughs> who was the leader? Nero, the guy who was going to kill Paul. The Caesar who was going to kill Paul, one of the mad, most insane of the Caesars. So, as it says, all authority is given by God. Um, so, the way we treat authority is the way we're showing respect or disrespect for his authority. Now, we have an issue here in our country because we're the authority. They work for us. So, you know, what's happening in our country is because of us. We can't just blame politicians. We, have, we, the people, have let things get really out of hand. So we're getting the kind of people. This country was not designed to have politicians. Matter of fact, there should be, politicians should be an extinct species in America. The way it was designed, you went to Congress like you went to jury duty. It was a duty. You didn't get paid for it. They paid your expenses. That was about it. And you did it as a service to your country. And nobody wanted George Washington did not want to be president. You know, he got elected president. He didn't know it. He didn't even know he was running. They came and informed him. Hey, you just got elected president. He said, I wasn't running. I didn't want that. Said, no, you got it. He was the right guy for the, the job, no doubt. But uh, now, you know, we have some things, but I think we the people, he says, if my people, not the heathen, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face. <coughs> Repent of, turn from their wicked ways. We got to start with us. We have to start with us. Now, I think in a republic, and you know that's the only government that God established is a republican form of government. You guys understand we're not a democracy. And when everybody says we're a democracy, no, we're not. In fact, the founders were vehemently against democracy, a democracy. That's a form of government where the people choose everything. The majority rules everything. There is one true democracy in the earth, 
That's Switzerland, where literally every citizen votes on every law. And then the cantor, cantors, who are their elected guys, they carry out whatever the people voted on. They're the ones who get the job done, but they don't pass the laws or anything. The people do. Now, when you're a little country, is something you can pull something like that off. But what God established in Israel in the wilderness was a republic. Now, d democracy, uh, who was it? John Adams said that a democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for lunch. <laughs> That's what, and they said, no democracy has lasted more than, actually, I don't think any have ever lasted five years except for Switzerland. He said, they commit suicide. You know, the same crowd that were saying, Hosanna, blesses you, comes in the name of the Lord, were just five days later saying, crucify him. Same people. But the incredible whiplash of the mob, of the crowd, you know, no government can hold together under that. And uh, that's why a republic is you get to vote. You've got to vote, but you vote for those who are going to run things. That's where your vote is. That's what Moses established in Israel. When the Lord says, you know, he, he said, choose for me 70 elders from among the people. Let the people choose them. And just 70, there had to have been thousands of elders in Israel who were considered elders, but only 70 were called to govern. He said, choose 70 from among them. I'll pray for them. I'll lay hands on them. Give them the authority and they'll run things. And then he established captains of tens, hundreds and thousands but it was a Republican government. They got to vote on who they wanted their elders to be, but then the elders ran things. That's what a republic is. And that's what we are here. But we are the people, according to our constitution, that is the supreme law of the land. The people are the sovereign. Now, the founding fathers, they feared the mob. They saw what happened in the French Revolution. The insanity of when... Uh, in a democracy. That, they tried to have a democracy and uh, where the people rule. Well, look what it turned into. Madness, insanity. And so they feared that. They also feared the tyranny of a king or a dictator. So they tried to cut the balance. You know, three, he did not, they did not establish three co-equal branches of government. That's a fallacy too. They were very clear. They wanted the Congress to be the most powerful because they're gonna be the ones most responsible to the people and the people are the ultimate authority even though they don't do the actual governing. They choose the government. They, that's why they only gave the Congress the power of the purse and the power of impeachment. No other branch of government has those. They want the executive to be the next strongest. Now, this is all clear if you actually read the Constitution and you read the Federalist Papers where they explain to the states the Federalist Papers was Madison and the uh, John Jay and I think uh, who was the other author there, three of the founders explained everything in the Constitution for the states, this is why we did that. 
So if you ever really want to know what the founders meant by something and what they really wanted, go to the Federalist Papers. They explain everything. But anyway, they, uh, they want the executive to be next because he's going to have to be the most responsive to things like you know, foreign policy, stuff like that. So they gave him the second. They wanted the judicial to be the weakest of every branch of government. They said that, said it clear. Jefferson wrote extensively on what he considered the greatest threat to our republic is what he called judicial tyranny. When they start trying to do the job of the executive branch or the legislative branch, and think they have the power to do this. And right now, the Supreme Court acts like they're the supreme law of the land, not the Constitution. What they're doing is very unconstitutional. They're give, nowhere were they given authority to address issues such as abortion and same-sex marriage. And all. Nowhere is that given, not just to the Supreme Court, it's not given to any court. Clear statement of the Constitution is, Whatever's not whatever authority is not specifically given to the federal government in the Constitution is reserved to the states and to the people. They wanted all of those kind of things to be decided by those who were going to be most affected by them on the local level. Let the states work out all that kind of stuff. Well, the, the federal government through the courts, mostly the Supreme Court, uh, start seizing more and more authority. And right now, they're just about dictating policy in the country in a very unconstitutional way. Guess what? They're not going to rein themselves in. They're not going to put a check on themselves. Somehow, the people have got to rise up and say, you're out of line. And you get back in line. And almost every major fault line that we're fighting over now are because of Supreme Court decisions that were not their authority to make. I tell you, the founders got it right. They said, okay, you want to have same-sex marriage or whatever the thing is, you do it in your state. You have the right to do it as a state, and we can't dictate policy to you there. Then all the other states can see how that works for them. <laughs> you want to have transgender? You know, what, how about this thing where Biden comes out day one and says, you know, you've got to let transgenders who are male physically Join women's sports if you. What did that just do to women's sports? Is that nuts? Is that an insanity? You know, <clears throat> I'm just saying, we're going crazier and crazier. But he didn't have the authority to do that. The Supreme Court doesn't have the authority to do that. Constitution's clear. If it's not given to you in this Constitution, it's none of your business. It's reserved to the states. They can work it. You know where it says Congress shall make no religion. You know what that meant? And the way the states interpreted that? Every state could have their state religion. And they did for a while. Do you know there were some of those original states that you could not vote unless you were a Protestant Christian? I think is one of them, you couldn't vote unless you were Catholic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, now, what the states learned, that isn't right. 
Maybe we could make a law like that, but it's not a good law. Every single one of them did away with it, but they did it on a local level and they didn't mess up the whole country. You understand what I'm saying? I think South Carolina was one of those that you had to be a Protestant or whatever. And then they all, they all said, okay, that's not good. Let's don't do that. But they learned without jerking the whole country through it. So there's some things that if you look at the brilliance, it's my opinion. I've studied history for over 50 years, 55 years now. I started when I was 15 years old. And I don't think there's ever been a time in my life when I haven't had history books I'm reading. I love history. But, you know, I think to find two with the brilliance and the stature of our founding fathers alive at the same time in history, it would have been a remarkable time. How in the world we got 20 to 30 of that level of brilliance, of depth. It was divinely appointed. There's no other way you can explain it. Not, never has there been a coming together of people of that stature. You read their writers, their writings. There's, you don't have depth like that today. You know why we had it as a country then? The Great Awakening. You know, in, from about 1750s until about 1800, the American colonies and then the American country was probably, almost certainly, the most literate nation in the world. They said to find anybody in the whole country who did not read was remarkable. Every other country, you would have 10% of the people who were literate back in those times. Almost 100% in America. They said you could go to the, the, the frontier, those way out on the frontier, and go in their house. They would have a shelf of books, and they were the classics. And they would be worn out from them just reading them over and over. They were, there was a love of knowledge. There was a love of the truth. All that was born out of the Great Awakening. Our great, many of our great universities came up out of that. There's something, if you love Jesus, who is the word, I think you're going to love reading. That what you learn reading goes deeper into you than what you learn hearing. That's why we need preaching, but the written word, where Jesus stood on, where the power was, when he was challenged by Satan, it was, it is written. So there's something of cultivating that. And usually if you're, you know, you, a lot of people have trouble just starting to read. They just can't do it. They want to go to sleep. Plow through that. It's worth it. And when you get on the other side, it will add to your life a depth and a substance and, and I believe a power that you can't get any other way. Think of that. Jesus, who is the word, said, it is written. Let's find out what is written. But don't, we don't want to just hear words. Now, I love it. I study all kinds of things. I love science. I study science all the time. I study history all the time, things. But what I really am after is not just words, but it's hearing the words in them. Hearing the word himself in them. 
hear him speaking to me. I ask him to give me the books I'm supposed to read. There are gazillions of books. I don't want to read gazillions. I want to read the ones that I need to read right now. He has been so faithful to do that. I had an angel give me a book, brand new, beautiful, hardback book. I'm serious. He didn't give it to me personally, but he gave it to a friend of mine and was told to give me that book. And uh, this is a guy who he has frequent visitations and all. He's a real thing. Know him well. Anyway, he was also the administrator of a hospital. The one that Bob Jones died in. You may have heard the story of when Bob Jones died, what happened to the administrator that night in that old. It's one of the most remarkable things I've ever heard. Well, this guy was walking across the lobby of his hospital and a person walks up to him and uh, he said something and told to give it to me. And uh, he just gave him a word. He said, first among equals. And when he told me that, I said, that's not me, but it means something. <laughs> it's like, we couldn't get it. We're so dull. So he's back and this guy walks up to him again in his hospital. He gives him the book, first among equals. Written by Ken Starr. And uh, anyway, he brings it to me and I read it. I was studying a lot of Supreme Court decisions at the time, just trying to go back to where things have gotten off the rails so bad. Ken had it all clearly laid out and written far better than it would have taken me, you know, you, he, I could absorb it in hours. But Don said when he gave him the book, he looked at the book and then looked up to speak to him, and he was gone. So he looked all around the lobby, couldn't see him, talked to some people there. Did you see that guy? Nobody saw him, but he had, still had the book in his hand. So he brought it to me. I, I had right away put away all my other books and read that one. I said, it could not have been more better timing. Now, not all of them come to me that way. Some of them I just happen on to and, you know, whatever. And feel, But ask the Lord to be your teacher. Ask him to be your shepherd. That he leads you, he directs you, and you'll get it more and more. Keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking. But when he teaches you something, you get it. And it goes deep. He is the word. So I'm just saying I could ramble on for all afternoon, <laughs> but I think I probably shared enough now. But anyway, just read one of these a day or a week if you get a stack of them. They're, they're things that I wrote about our history that I think you'll find absolutely remarkable. Absolutely, some of the things incredible, and it will give you, an, I think, a necessary respect for what our fathers and mothers have done to give us such a great world, such a great country, which it still is, and everything else that we've been given. And always remember, we enter his gates with thanksgiving. He says, be anxious for nothing, but then he says, in all things give thanks. And that will help when you start being thankful. I thanked him every day when I got COVID. I said, Lord, this thing is awesome. It's getting me closer than you. It says be thankful for all things. I thanked him for COVID. And it turned into one of the greatest experiences I'd ever had because of what happened spiritually. 
but I believe in all things, give thanks. Every trial, remember, we're told it through many tribulations shall we enter the kingdom. So in every tribulation, every trial, there's a doorway to the kingdom. Instead of getting discouraged about the trial, start looking for the door. Every one of them has a doorway where we can enter the kingdom. So uh, don't miss those opportunities. And he's not going to let a trial come upon you without purpose. And he promises they're going to work for good. Didn't Peter say, you know, the testing of your faith is more valuable than gold. So when we have a test, we should get as excited as if we had just found a bag of gold. How many of you have done that (laughs) when that trial came your way? Let's try. Let's go for it. I think we go for things like that. I think if we really understand what has worked in us for eternity with these trials, we would get more excited than a bag of gold. bag of gold is temporary. Don't waste your trials. There's a gateway to the kingdom. Well, thank you for paying attention for this long. That's awesome. Thank you, Rick.